Welcome to First Formation, spiritual exercise for Christian soldiers looking to get the fuck up and pray. Join Pew Pew HQ every weekday morning to hear the good news through grunts and with grunts in the unity of the Holy Spirit as one church forever and ever. Fall in. Psalm 80, verses 1 through 7. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon a cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us the scorn of our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with the ancestors, with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another, or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 18. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands day after day at his surface, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all a time for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, and since then he has been waiting until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. For a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Good morning and welcome to the third Thursday of Advent. This is Brother Logan Isaac broadcasting from Walkersville, Maryland. This morning's readings come to us from Psalm 80, Jeremiah 31, and Hebrews 10. And we've returned to the Psalms for the the final Sunday, the build-up to the final Sunday of Advent. And the readings from uh, Jeremiah and Hebrews go together really wonderfully. Uh, The Old Testament reading with Jeremiah uh, looks toward a new covenant, a new testament, um, that uh, does not just kind of get written on stone tablets, but on the hearts of all people, so that they will know the Lord. And one thing that um, doesn't always go... Uh, well, 
I guess I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, the New Testament reading from Hebrews, um, you may not know it without knowing the history, but Hebrews is, I don't know if it's the only letter, but it's certainly the most prominent letter of the New Testament that directly addresses why it matters that there's no more temple. So most of all of the Gospels and most of the letters, there's a handful of Pauline letters that were written before the destruction of the temple um, in 70 AD or CE. Um, And Hebrews uh, is written uh, with uh, Hebraic theology in mind, and it's explaining, look, this is why there's no more temple. Um, They are making sense of the fact that... um, the, the Jewish people as a whole, which includes the Christians, have done something to um, finally kind of cross the threshold of what Rome was willing to view as enough, you know, rebellion and revolt. Um, uh, the, uh, the author is saying, look, um, and he, he doesn't directly evoke Jeremiah, but he has it in mind, this new covenant, this new testament, um, saying that um, soon uh, I will take away their sins. And uh, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews explains that Jesus um, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. In that way, he was acting as a high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, um, where one goat is sacrificed, um, and the other goat takes on the sins of the people and is cast off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Um, And this paves the way between God and humanity. In fact, kephar is the word that is used for atonement uh, that is made, and it means pitch or bitumen that you put on a road, a new road like asphalt. Um, And so usually Yom Kippur is an annual Celebration. It marks the new religious year for the Jews. Um, and Christ, when he takes his sacrifice, he also is the sacrifice. And once he does that, it's for all time. And this is why it concludes by saying, where there is forgiveness of sins, there's no longer any offering for sin. So we don't need to go to the temple. We don't have to perform Yom Kippur every year because Jesus is the one sacrifice for all. And earlier when I was, I started talking about something else, it's important to point out, um, uh, it isn't, and this is, I'm some, I'm still, I'm still coming to terms and trying to understand this more myself through the work of uh, Richard Horsley, who's a uh, New Testament, or I'm sorry, well, first century historian, um, you know, like N.T. Wright and Richard Bauckham. Anyway, um, he points out that you know we we often downplay the sharp distinction. No, I shouldn't say sharp. We downplay the differences within Israel and Judah. Um, and one of my interests lately, and what got me into Horsley's work, is uh, what was going on in Galilee. Um, you know, because for the first century and leading up to it. They were separate, you know, once Herod dies, Herod the first, when he dies, it gets split up. But even before that, the the lands of the north, of the northern tribes, 
are distinct. When the the country um, breaks down uh, after Solomon's death, um, you have all these northern tribes, uh, which included the two military tribes, Zebulon and Naphtali. And so that's the what brought me into this. And one of the one of those differences, one of those points of contention, was the temple economy um, and the religious establishment that held sway or control over these rites, and also the theological educational economy, for lack of a better word. And so, one of the things that's happened when the temple is destroyed is, you know, that that symbolic tearing of the veil. You know, that's it's real, like. There, this is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, I think, that they will not teach one another anymore. There will no longer be priests who have this power that they can abuse uh, and lord it over the others, you know, namely the tribes to the north, the lands of Zebulon and Naphtali. And so there's these struggles, class and social struggles within Israel um, that, if we look closely, help us understand additional factors going on, right? Um, and so the nobody will teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord for they shall know me. Um, that is, I think, a, a warning or, or at least a, a cautionary example of what can happen when, you know, the, the religious educational gatekeepers act more like gatekeepers than... Um, you know, edu- educators, frankly. Um, you know, I talk with with Laura and other friends about, you know, what happens. And I I, uh, I had a difficult time in higher education, not just because other students didn't quite understand the military and my experience, and that kind of made me revert back into more identification with the military because, you know, everybody knew I was a, a vet and... You can't really avoid it if if somebody wants to know they can. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, the other students in the culture, but the professors um, who would, you know, lean on me for advice for the military because they're not military and they have a bunch of military people like me coming to them. They relied on me for advice. But then when I started pressing, pushing back on some of their anti-military bias, they had the power to just push me away. Um, and that's what happened. And so when I read this temple economy where um, the Sadducees um, you know, held power and they, it wasn't just authority, you know, exousia uh, in the Bible, it was also power power, like economic power, political power. And so one thing that happens, um, one, one way that this author of Hebrews and the Christian community, the earliest Christian community, one of the ways that they interpreted the destruction of the temple was, you know, there's no there's no more priests or religious hierarchy that can tell us how they have the right way and all the rest of us are wrong. Um, and this goes into Israel's history as well. When the Assyrians um, threw them into exile, they took mostly the religious and political and social elites, leaving a bunch of mid to low status Jews in Israel, in the land of Israel, and they stayed there. They kept doing their thing. And when the elites came back, they were called Samaritans. And they thought, 
And the, the, the cool kids didn't think the Samaritans were worshiping God correctly, even though they hadn't been in Israel, they hadn't been connected with the promised land. This is the same thing that, um, that happens in Galilee with some of the northern tribes. Um, and so there's these internal divisions and strife that are going on, that the temple is one of those places where power can be exerted, and where power can be exerted, it can be exerted corruptly. And that's one of the, the things that's going on, that when Jesus enters the scene and God comes to earth, um, it is to establish you know, a holy nation that doesn't necessarily rely on these you know, corruptible establishments um, that have, in fact, been corrupt by the time they get there. Um, so it's a message of hope to say no one will teach one another um, because they will all know God from the least to the greatest, because that that law will be written on their hearts, and the forgiveness of sins doesn't have to happen every year through this same hierarchical, corruptible establishment, because the forgiveness uh, is once and for all in Christ, and there's no longer any need for an offering of sin, either daily or weekly or annually. A prayer for the clergy and people from the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, from whom comes every good and perfect gift, send down upon our bishops and other clergy and upon the congregations committed to their charge the healthful spirit of your grace, and that they may truly please you, pour upon them the continual dew of your blessing. Grant this, O Lord, for the honor of our Advocate and Mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for falling into First Formation, where Pew Pew HQ shares morning prayers for the humble, hardy folk caught in the crosshairs of God and country. If you like what you've heard, you can participate in one of the three following ways. First, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash pewpewhq. You can contribute as little as a dollar a month, and you can cancel at any time if I ever piss you off. Second, you can become a co-host by recording a lectionary reading for a future episode. Instructions will be provided, and you don't have to be a grunt to collaborate with Pew Pew HQ in this or any way. Finally, you can also record and send prayer requests of a minute or less. Prayers can be included in the episode, read anonymously if you wish, or kept private for me to pray for off-air. So there you have it, three ways to participate in First Formation. I hope you'll continue to listen, even if I can't convince you to jump in. This has been Brother Logan Isaac, always faithful, always family. Semper Familia.